Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Welcome back, my friends. This is the ongoing Chronicles of Paradise Lost. I am going to be in book five today, and just a certain passage in book five. Now, Milton's poem occurs in many ways out of narrative sequence. So in book five, you're going to find Adam and Eve already existing, but it actually won't be till book eight that it's described uh, their birth, right, their creation. So we'll get to that creation, but first we have them and then the creation of of them is something that's sort of remembered and told to them later and the reason i'm going to allow that to be the way he has it is because this is true this is true of our experience we come into the world and experience the world long before we have metacognition and be and are able to reflect on our birth right like that's not a normal thing you don't actually have some cognitive awareness of being born typically right so Part of the reason Milton has the process in this in this pattern, this order, is because it's true of human experience. And if you know anything about the literary, the literary is most concerned with approximating and imitating what it's like to be an embodied creature in the world, experiencing things through the senses, through the affect, through the mind. It's not philosophy. It's not an abstraction. So Milton is committed to what it's like to be human and to trying to represent that through his literature. So I'm going to just take things in the sequence in which I find them. And so what we're going to be doing today is book five and specifically a dream that Eve has. It's her first dream that we're aware of her having. And it's a dream in which Satan appears to tempt her. So they wake in the morning, and it's beautiful, it's descriptive, of, it, it actually evokes many things, including the Odyssey. If you ever read the Odyssey, you know that almost every time Homer describes the dawn, he describes it as the rosy fingertips of dawn. It's always the rosy fingertips. And so Milton, with a little nod to Homer, says, Now mourn her rosy steps in the eastern clime advancing, sowed the earth with orient pearl. I mean, it's just like, forget it, dude. Um, Milton's the best. I, I, I'm obsessed with all these guys, but he's just stupid good. Um, so he describes Adam and Eve waking, and then Eve is disturbed upon waking, and she turns to Adam and she says this. She says, O soul in whom my thoughts find all repose, my glory, my perfection, glad I see thy face. Remember, human face divine. Glad I see thy face, and morn returned, for I this night, such night till this I never passed, have dreamed, if dreamed not as I often want of thee. So she has dreamed before, but typically of, of things that she had experienced during the day or of her husband. Works of day past or morrow's next design, but of offense and trouble, which my mind never knew till this irksome night. Methought close at mine ear, one called me forth to walk with gentle voice, I thought it thine. In other words, in the dream, she thinks she's waking up. She hears a voice. The only human voice she's ever heard is Adam's. The only voices she's ever heard is Adam's, and then she overhears the angel talking to Adam. 
Um, but her experience of language is almost exclusively between her and her husband. So when she hears the voice in the dream and thinks she's waking up, but she's still in the dream, she assumes the voice is her husband's. And so in part, what we're, what's almost being implied is that the serpent, or, or Satan, excuse me, is not the serpent yet. Satan is imitating her husband. That's important. So she thinks the voice is his, and the voice calls her forth to walk with gentle voice. So it's, it's, it's entreating, it's, it's soft. I thought it thine. It said, why sleepst thou, Eve? Now is the pleasant time, the cool, the silent, save where silence yields to the night-warbling bird that now awake tunes sweetest his love-labored song. Now reigns full orb the moon, and with more pleasing light, shadowy sets off the face of things. In vain, if none regard. So she doesn't know the body the voice is attached to. It's near to her. And what Satan, this is Satan, we find out very quickly. But what Satan says is, why are you asleep? And the proper answer would be like, because it's nighttime. Because <laughs> it's that time to sleep. And he says, no, 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 no. Night is the most pleasant time, the cool time, the silent time. And then he describes how the full-orbed moon sets off with more pleasing light shadows on the face of things. Um, so in part, if you want to just keep the language we've been working with in previous episodes, light is always understanding, knowledge, illumination, clarity, um, apprehension. Darkness is ignorance. It's confusion. It's it's uh, it's being uh, sort of muddled or ambiguous, right? It's it's having occlusion, right? Obscurity, etc. Right? That language of cloud over the eyes, the language of blindness, the language of darkness visible in hell. All this is important language. Here, what this what Satan is saying to her is, oh no 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 no. The the night it does have a light. It's a soft light though. Um, it's a Snapchat filter. It, it's a light that, that is not as glaring. It's not as harsh, right? It's secret kind of light. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be out at night. Now, this is, this is true, right? Like if you're awake like late into the wee hours, something like that, there's something cool about how like silent everything is. Like if you ever go outside, go on a night walk or something. Uh, there is something to that, but what, this, what Satan is doing is he is, he, is, he is saying that night is a time for her to be awake because it has a soft light, a shadowy light, a forgiving light, right? Um, you know, when you see like a giant, I don't know, HD LCD screen at Costco, you know, the human face is just not meant to be seen at that level of magnitude. Like every person, even beautiful people, look terrifying with those pores, right? Like it's too sharp. There's too much light. It's terrifying. But people can doctor their photos, right? People can soften things. They can shade and shadow. They can filter. They can make themselves look more and more beautiful by softening the light, right? Like there is an entreaty here to be awake at a time in which not everything is seen, only some things, right? It's a time where there's obfuscation, where there's this shadowiness. It's not completely dark. The full-orbed moon is out. But now is the pleasant time. Like why sleeps thou, Eve? Now is the time to be awake. Now, and now listen to exactly what he says. Now reigns full orb the moon and with more pleasing light, more pleasing than the day, 
you know, the night is always the time in which crime happens. Night is the time when, when fugitive and hidden things happen. It's the time, I mean, you know, just literally it's the time when crime rates spike, right? Because people feel like in the shadow or the cover of night they can get away with things because not everything is seen, right? Like it's weird to see someone commit a, a crime, what do we say, in broad daylight, right? Night is always a place of fugitive or hidden motives or aspects. It's a place in which there's a little more freedom to play with certain ideas and certain gestures and activities that you would never do in the broad light of day or at the office <laughs> in the full light of everyone being around, right? You would never, ever, ever, ever do that. I often talk to my students, and I do apologize uh, if you have children in the room. Um, just earmuff them for a second. But I often talk to my students about porn addiction at this point. And I talk about how, you know, people, like, if you were actually to, like, nobody wants you to look at their browser history. Nobody wants you to see what they see. And, and yet we know from the, the power of porn addiction, because it's an imagistic addiction, it's a sensual addiction, it's a, it's a visual addiction, um, people will literally go without sleep way into the wee hours of night. They, they will be uh, unable to function. They will skip work. They'll, people who fall into this addiction at a, at a level that they cannot control any longer um, are like creatures of a different order, right? They, they actually are completely disabled and impaired by that. But it is a fugitive and shadowy thing. It's not something that you would do in front of people at, at an office or at a family gathering or something. Like, you'd be ashamed of that. And so, you know, I teach in secular environments, but... Um, I talk about that nonetheless because it's just facts. And, and this idea of the shadowy light. Um, doctors are receiving regularly people uh, 16 to 50 coming in saying, I want to look like this and showing them Snapchat filtered pictures of themselves. I want you to change my face so that I look like this softened, shadowed light. So I look better because of this alteration that I was able to conjure, because in the full actual light of my reality, I am dissatisfied with my appearance. So he is enjoining her to be awake in this soft light, more pleasing, this light, more possibilities, more sort of maybe devious possibilities, but so far it's just an entreaty to a softer kind of beauty. And then he says this, in vain, if none regard. Now obviously, in vain, right? He is saying, be awake in this time so that you can enjoy this. But what he's saying is, in vain if none regard. What does it matter that the world exists at night if no one's awake to see it? This is the satanic mind. Because what is he saying? The objective reality of the world is immaterial and irrelevant. What matters is the subjective apprehension, right? What matters is what you're seeing. It doesn't matter that the world is just there and that it's just there. It's only there if you see it, right? It's almost like it's related to yourself. The world is there for you or else it may as well not be there. In vain if none regard, right? It, it's, it's not, it, unless you can enjoy it, it's like it doesn't exist. In other words, the entire objective reality is being positioned as something fully existing for the appetite, fully existing for personal enjoyment or pleasure. So that's why the doubling on in vain. This is pure narcissism, right? The world exists for my enjoyment. And, and Satan's entreaty is, what a loss if people sleep through this beauty, if no one acknowledges this beauty. 
it's like it doesn't even exist if it's not enjoyed, right? And then he pushes that even further and he says, heaven wakes with all his eyes, whom to behold but thee, nature's desire, in whose sight all things joy with ravishment, attracted by thy beauty still to gaze. This is even more disturbing. So what he says here, first he says, heaven wakes with all his eyes. Now, if you wanted to be charitable, heaven wakes with all his eyes. You could think of the stars or the moon as being like eyes, right? Sometimes in poetry, those heavenly bodies are described as lidless eyes, right? Which is actually a pretty frightening concept, a lidless eye. Unbelievable. You can't blink. Anyways, and there's no pupil. That's terrifying. But either way, the idea that the stars are like lights that are like eyes, right? That is somewhat conventional. But what's disturbing is he personalizes it with the uh, singular masculine pronoun. Heaven wakes with all his eyes. That's close to saying God. God awakes with all his eyes. To do what exactly? Whom to behold but thee, nature's desire, in whose sight all things joy, with ravishment, attracted by thy beauty still to gaze. So it's not obvious. He's acting like heaven, God and his angels, God, the stars. Heaven wants to see her. Heaven wants to enjoy her. Heaven wants to look on her beauty and be ravished. In other words, he is, he is making a not-so-subtle elision of heavenly sort of sovereignty, God and his heaven watching over us, right? The language of light, the language of sight. And now he's saying that the heavenly is voyeuristic and lecherous. Now, and, and, and this is what's tough about this, so this is perverse, right? But, but think about this, right? We exist in social media spaces precisely for this reason. We want to be seen. We want to be enjoyed, right? Um, there's this struggle on YouTube with young girls posting videos of themselves in not the most best way imaginable and it becoming pretty creepy um, because of who is watching them. It's the same on Instagram. It's the same. We actually actually get some sort of rush or some, some felicitous feelings from being observed and enjoyed, right? And so Satan is couching this time of night, this darkness, this shadowy beauty as not just something for her to enjoy, but basically for her to be enjoyed, right? For her to be liked, for her to be enjoyed as to her physical beauty, like all of nature is lusting after her. And, and you might be like, gosh, wouldn't that be so disgusting and repulsed? And then you have to ask, why does social media exist? It exists because people enjoy being seen privately. They enjoy the possibility that for 24 hours a day, their most beautiful photos are being observed voyeuristically. It's pretty perverse, pretty creepy if you actually walk that all the way out. But there is something in human psychology that absolutely finds that to be thrilling. Uh, the, there is something in, in our nature that actually enjoys this sort of anonymous observation. Um, and yet also freaks us out, right? Um, the panopticon, the, the state in which drones are flying over our houses and the government knows everything we do and Google knows my thoughts before I think them and is trying to sell me shoes that I just mentioned to my wife an hour ago. I mean, there's a freakish 
voyeuristic culture we live in. And yeah, it must be acknowledged there is also an indulgence in that voyeurism. And Satan is in this dream entreating Eve to her own vanity, not only to enjoy the world because clearly the world only exists for her, but for the world to be able to feast on her with its lecherous eyes. And of course, this is blasphemous because he is subtly saying, if not subtly, um, God is a lecher, right? Like God has created what nature for his uh, lusts. I mean, it's, it's a perverse um, twist here. And, and that's what you have to see. You have to see how something with the satanic begins as a soft entreaty to a more beautiful time of night. Look, it's cool. It's silent. It's calm. And then within a few lines, he has completely blasphemed and he has completely appealed to her basest appetite and her basest nature to try to cajole her to follow him. So he then moves from that disturbing moment, and she says, I rose at thy call, but found thee not. She's, still, she's confused. She doesn't see the person. She just hears the voice. And she says, to find thee, I directed then my walk. So she starts looking for her husband. Like, was that him? What was he saying? What is he talking about? She's confused. She's disoriented. She starts walking in the dream, looking for her husband. And on me thought alone, I passed through ways that brought me on a sudden to the tree of interdicted knowledge. This is the forbidden tree. So whatever path she found that she was able to take, it led directly to this tree of forbidden knowledge, right? So this, because this is a satanic dream. Fair it seemed... And notice the play, right? It looked beautiful. As I heard I was, right? As I was told the world was for me. Fair it seemed, much fairer to my fancy than by day. Again, the softened light of the, the, the filter is making the tree, which during the day never appealed to her, suddenly very appealing to her. This is the encroachment of the temptation, right? That which is forbidden, that which is satanic, that which is fallen, that which you know from God would destroy you, has moments of looking beautiful, of being enticing. And she says, and as I wondering looked, right, astonished, wonder, marveling, beside it stood one shaped and winged like one of those from heaven. This is Paul's angel of light, right? Standing there beside the tree is an angelic creature. His dewy locks distilled ambrosia. Okay, so, and this is really important. So the satanic, as I mentioned long ago in our last time when we, when we were exploring the satanic mind, the satanic is sensual, right? It is obsessively sensual. And so when Satan takes on this angelic aspect of his, right, he can appear, as Paul reminded us, as an angel of light. He has dewy locks. I mean, it's like a Fabio. He's like this, like, you know, this ridiculous romance novel figure. He, he is beautiful. He is beautiful. And this is part of, of the temptation, right? Um, you know, Aristotle or, or Plato, but especially Aristotle would say, we never do something except that we think it will bring us joy. Like, we don't, we don't, in the Christian language, we don't sin because we're like, yeah, I just hate everything and I just want to be sad. We actually sin because we think at least for a moment it'll make me feel real good. We actually sin because it's appealing to us, right? We sin, Scripture tells us, because we desire it, right? And so what you're seeing in the satanic dream 
is desire being sort of peaked. Dewey locks. And then, I mean, so it's always sensual, right? And by sensual, I, I mean sensory. Eyes, right? Visible, touch, and then smell, right? So it says, Dewey locks distilled ambrosia. There is a scent, a beautiful scent emanating from his hair, okay? I don't know if you ever tried to drive past In-N-Out, but In-N-Out pumps out In-N-Out smell into the atmosphere, so if you were trying to decide between In-N-Out and whatever two or three places that might be around, Jersey Mike's or whatever the heck, some normal place for a sandwich or something like that, you might be like, I've had too much In-N-Out. I have to just get a sandwich. I have to get a salad somewhere. My gosh, I'm going to have a heart attack. But as you drive up, if your window's down, if you drive anywhere near it, what is that? What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's Dewey Locks Ambrosia. That's what it is. They literally have a fan operating at the top of the building that is pushing out as far as they can emit it the smell of their incredible cheeseburger in fact i need to go have one right now because i can't even think about this and keep my mind straight dewey locks ambrosia it's incredible how your mind will be changed when you can smell the food that you didn't even know you wanted until you smelled it right dewey locks ambrosia Every sensory thing is now calling out to Eve, is drawing her in, is pulling her attention to what? To this angelic creature who is not facing her. It says next, or she says next, on that tree he also gazed. If you ever, um, if you ever study painting, they'll always look for the line of sight, right? And a lot of times it's the characters or the images or the angle of the painting that will direct your eye. So sometimes in like, especially like old Renaissance paintings or whatever, um, characters will be looking at something in the painting and it just makes you look at the thing they're looking at. You look at them, they're looking at that, you look at that. So it directs your gaze. And that's what this is doing. The angelic, the, the satanic, the beautiful angel of light here, Dewey Locks Ambrosia, is not looking at her. Hey, how's it going? Want to be tempted by Satan? No, 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 no. Satan never does that. Never directly, right? Never does that directly. Satan is, is, is misdirecting. He's not saying, look at me. He's saying, look at that. Look at that, right? He's saying, follow this eyesight, follow my line of sight, follow the gaze, right? He is being looked at by her. He is looking at the tree. She's looking at the tree. The point is the tree, right? He points away from himself to the object of her actual temptation, right? He even he tries to tempt Christ directly. It doesn't work, so he points Christ to a kingdom. He points Christ to bread that could be made from stones. He points Christ to a feet or a miracle from the top of the temple, right? He doesn't say, hey, you know, like me, you know, that's not tempting, right? What's tempting is that over there, right? Because, because then you're not thinking. You're not thinking, wait, that's Satan. What am I doing here? You know? You're not actually piqued by it. You're not interested in Satan. You're interested in the thing that might give you joy. And so he gazes at the tree. She gazes at the tree. And, oh, fair plant, said he. He speaks. Oh, fair plant. That's an apostrophe. So he's talking to the plant as though the plant is sentient. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal, but what he's doing is he's subtly implying that the plant exists outside of God. This is really important. The satanic must always make the claim that you can be and should be autonomous. 
if you're reminded at every moment, like you ought to be, that you have been given into existence by God, that you owe your existence by for, from for God, that Christ at every moment creates, sustains, sustains, sustains everything that exists, and nothing exists that has not been made through Him. If you forget that, and you think that something exists apart from Him, maybe the speaker in His suffering, existing apart from Him, but here Satan is talking to the tree. And he says, O oh, fair plant, with fruit surcharged, deigns none to ease thy load and taste thy sweet, nor God nor man? Is knowledge so despised, or envy, or what reserve forbids to taste? Forbid who will, none shall from me withhold. Longer thy offered good, why else set here? In other words, and he says this, if you actually look at that first part, I know you're not looking at anything, but <laughs> hear me look at it. Um, he actually says, he actually says, deigns none to ease thy load. In other words, he is talking to the tree as though it is burdened with its fruit. You know, when trees are overripe, right? Uh, the, the fruit gets larger and larger and larger. Rocks just start to pull the branches down. And that's, you know, when in the normal world, like the apple falls to the ground, right? Like, like burden. It's like have it's, he's describing the tree as suffering, the tree, it needs help. You need to take and eat this fruit to save the tree from being weighed down with this fruit surcharged, right? He has too much, right? It's being treated as like a person who is suffering, and his suffering will be alleviated if you take and eat. It's an incredible apostrophe. And yet what it's trying to do is act as though the tree exists unto itself. And he says that, taste thy sweet, and then, and then, this said he paused not, but with venturous arm he plucked, he tasted. Now, in the line, you might be able to see this, but Milton changes the punctuation here so that the satanic has no interval of reflection. He is saying this, and then he immediately takes and eats it. You know, we have to have reflection. We're like, should I do that? Should I do this? Hmm. But there is this immediate action between desire that, that Satan has and his reaching out real fast and taking it and tasting it. He doesn't do this thinking, then reaching, then looking at it, then eating. He does it all in one, and Milton has it all in one fluid line without any punctuation break because it's like this immediate action. It's frightening because it's like unthought through, right? It just is pure desire. And it says, her reaction, me, damp, horror, chilled. In other words, she's like shocked by this. Shocked at such bold words, vouched with a deed so bold. She can't even believe that he so immediately said and did, right? Uh, this is what we call impulse, right? Usually, if you do something impulsively, it's not good, <laughs> right? And she is like shocked that the satanic is impulsive. That, that it's just immediate, like no reflection, boom, desire satisfied. Desire satisfied. Desire satisfied. So she is shocked by this. He thus overjoyed and starts celebrating the tree. Listen when he says, O fruit divine, sweet of thyself, but much more sweet thus cropped forbidden here, it seems, as only fit for gods, yet able to make gods of men. And why not gods of men? Since good, the more communicated, more abundant grows. So he says that the tree, and this is really important uh, metaphysical 
severance here. The tree is sweet of thyself. Nothing is sweet of thyself. Every good and perfect thing comes down to us from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or shifting, right? There is no night. Anything that has sweetness, enjoyment, beauty, truth, goodness is from God. He addresses the tree as though it is autonomous, self-existing, sweet of thyself, as though it's produced its own reality, as though it's produced its own beauty. And of course we know from, if you were with us before, we know that this is what Satan believes of himself. He believes that he gave birth to himself, that he is not derived, he is not dependent, he is not contingent, he does not need God. And so he treats the tree, the satanic is always narcissistic, it's always self-projecting, it's always mimetic, so he treats the tree as he thinks of himself. Sweet of thyself. And of course that's really important for Eve to not be afraid of a tree that God warned her to, to not go near if she can think of the tree as existing somehow apart from God separate from God. It's not bound to God. There's no, if you mess with this tree, it's not, you're not messing with God. It's, it's sweet of itself. In fact, it's burdened by this fruit. It needs you to alleviate its pains by taking and eating this fruit. Right? The amount of self-justification that we can entertain when we try to justify our sin is extraordinary. The human mind just starts doing backflips of like cognitive activity to try to explain why we're doing something we know is disobedient to God. And why not gods of men? Like, why, why, if this has knowledge, if this is good, it, doesn't good just get multiplied if it's shared? Like, if, if, if you have good, if God has good, why wouldn't he share it? Wouldn't it just magnify the good? And, and how could it not be good if it's from God? Why not gods of men? For gods, yet able to make gods of men. And why not? Since good, the more communicated, more abundant grows. The author not impaired, but honored more. It's not going to take away from God. It'll just add. It'll add more like God's. Here, happy creature, fair angelic Eve, partake thou also. Now he turns to her. That whole time he wasn't looking at her. And I just want you to see in that the voyeurism. Sin is entertained when it feels like it's abstract. We're not yet implicated. We're just watching pornography. We're just watching something else. We're watching horrific violence or her watching something on TV that is probably poisoning our mind, but it doesn't feel like we're participating. We're just watching. Up to this point, she has just been watching him interact with the tree. She has not been interacting with the tree per se. She's been watching him interact with the tree. So she's engaged in some of this voyeurism. She's engaged in someone else sinning. And then he turns to her. Partake thou also. I mean, eventually, sin or the satanic has to make demands, right? Partake thou also. Happy though thou art, happier thou mayst be. Be worthier, canst not be. You are already incredible. (laughs) Taste this and be henceforth among the gods, thyself a goddess. Not to earth confined, but sometimes in the air, as were sometimes ascend to heaven by merit thine, and see what life the gods live there, and such live thou. So saying he drew nigh, and to me held, even to my mouth of that same fruit held part which he had plucked, the pleasant savory smell so quickened appetite that I methought could not but taste. So all of a sudden the satanic goes from voyeuristic and passive to super aggressive. 
turns to her, faces her, says, partake thou also. Now, and then he moves toward her with the fruit, places it directly in front of her face, and she feels like she has to eat it. It's like all of a sudden she's being coerced, all of a sudden it's aggressive, all of a sudden it turned on her. And it's not clear whether or not even in the dream she takes a bite. She just says she feels like she couldn't help it. Like her resistance has all been dropped because he just completely entered into this space and is forcing it on her. And then all of a sudden, we don't know exactly what happened before, forthwith up to the clouds with him I flew. Now, remember, the satanic is always tempting with transcendence. He's always tempting with you will be happier. You will enjoy more. You will be like gods. And transcendence is literally aboveness, right? You'll escape this body. You'll escape this world. You'll escape all your frailties. You know, most of sin is engaged with out of self-pity. You feel worthless. You feel ugly. You feel whatever. You feel like no one cares. And so you indulge things you know you ought not to because you want to escape that feeling of being stuck as the person you are. And so he tempts her to escape. And literally, we don't even know if she takes the fruit in the dream, but literally he takes her by the hand and up she flew. All of a sudden she's in the air. All of a sudden she's literally escaped this material existence of bodies and corruption. And all, this kind. all of a sudden she is as a god looking down. All of a sudden she is literally being entertained as though an angel, right? She is, is experiencing the aboveness that he imagines or she might imagine God experiences being able to see and know all. You'll be able to experience, he says, what life the gods live there and such live thou. So saying he drew nigh and then methought, but could not help but help with taste, forthwith up to the clouds with him I flew and underneath beheld the earth outstretched immense, a prospect wide and various, wondering at my flight and change to this high exaltation, to this high exaltation, right? Self-exaltation, pride. To this high exaltation, where'd my line go? <laughs> Wondering at my flight and change to this high exaltation, suddenly my guide was gone, and I, methought, sunk down and fell asleep. So this is right about where the dream ends, but right in the moment where she transcends everything, sees everything, Everything is revealed to her, right? Her guide vanishes and she's alone. The satanic, remember the satanic temptation is for autonomy. You owe God nothing. Sweet of thyself, right? In yourself, you are all things. You need nothing from God. Well, that also means that even in the transcendent moment when up she flies, she turns to see her guide and he's gone. You don't have anything. When you're tempted, you are alone. You are cut off. You are alienated, right? Satan is not there to keep you company, right? She is literally abandoned in the air. In the moment of her exaltation, she is suddenly revealed to be suspended above things alone. And then she says, me thought, I sunk down. As soon as she has been raised up in the satanic fantasy, she falls. It's a, it's a false fall, right? False exaltation and then a false fall. It exaggerates something, right? This is what temptation and sin does. It, it, it plays out the fall all over again. You know better. You know what God has said. And yet you exalt yourself over God's word. And the moment you think you're about to really enjoy or escape, you just find yourself falling again. She wakes and is relieved to see 
her husband. Adam listens and answers sad, which is really beautiful line. Um, Best image of myself and dearer half, the trouble of thy thoughts this night and sleep affect me equally. Right? She's just related all this to him and he is like shaken. Nor can I like this uncouth dream of evil sprung, I fear. Yet evil whence? In thee can harbor none, created pure. But know that in the soul are many lesser faculties that serve reason as chiefly among these fancy next her office holds of all external things which the five watchful senses represent. She forms imaginations. What he does here is actually pretty lovely. He says, it's not your fault. You didn't have control over this dream. The scripture will say things like, take every thought captive to Christ. But things will come into the mind of a human being that are random, chaotic, and insane. Um, and it, you could feel that you're culpable for even having some random, chaotic thought. And you're not culpable for that. You're culpable for entertaining the thought. When she wakes, she's disturbed that these thoughts, that this dream she just had, has ruined her. It's almost like she's afraid she's already fallen. And he says, wait, 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 wait. The mind is, is a heck of a place, right? The, the fancy, the imagination. Thoughts can come into our minds, but you were created pure. You have not fallen. Even if you have seen or felt or, or imaginatively experienced this evil moment or temptation, it has not forced you. You know, you think about Cain. Uh, sin is crouching at your door, perhaps, but you can master it. Adam, Adam encourages her with really a lovely speech. I will not read it here, but encourages her that these things in the mind can be, uh, can be put back out of the mind. They, they need not change us. They need not dictate our behavior. They need not be co-opted or, or absorbed as our nature. Um, if we don't entertain them, if we're repulsed by them, that's a, good, that's a good response. An evil thought comes into your mind and you find it hideous and repulsive. Adam would say, wonderful, that's a great sign. That's a sign of your connection to God, the sign of your purity and, and the spirit within you waging that war against the flesh. That's not, that's not crazy. You have not fallen. You have not sinned. And so he encourages her with this, and she is, is, is comforted slightly. And he says, look, it's not going to leave a blemish. It's not going to mar you. It's not going to stain you in any way. Uh, Milton is making some pretty subtle arguments here. And one of them is, is at least the question of, what does fiction do? What does imagination do? Um, it's worth thinking about. What do you watch? What do you listen to? What is that doing to you? right? Um, there is some real world in the mind of fancy, of imagination. These things are not um, disconnected from us. Uh, Adam would say he, she's not culpable because she did not entertain it or try to make that thought come into her mind. But Milton is pretty strong about the role of our imaginations, the role of our minds and our thoughts and the impact they have on who we are and who we become. So, there's going to be this ongoing kind of tension underneath things of what does thought do to impress itself upon our character and our nature? What does it do to shape us in, in ways that would have not occurred if we hadn't have had certain thoughts? And Adam's saying it's not a death sentence and it's not a compulsion to have to sin. And that's true, scripturally. Um, but you're going to see, I think, in part, the way that this dream still affects and is let, allowed to have some effect on the way that they talk and relate to each other 
in a pretty pivotal scene that we'll look at next time. So we're going to put the bookmark in there. Sorry, uh, some of these are, I mean, everything in this book is fairly intense. Um, but hopefully uh, there's enough in here that is not abstract or simply sort of elitist poetry for somebody else. Hopefully you can see things in here that are very real and are worth uh, thinking through and meditating on in the way that, that Milton is, is trying to do. Hopefully there is uh, some, some obvious value here for you in these studies. But um, well, let's put the bookmark in there, and, uh, and I hope you will join us for the next installment. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed. <laughs>